Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me today is my co-host and my partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford. Hello. Hello, my love. So today is going to be one of those special interview episodes like you've done in the past. Those are always popular. I'm super excited to introduce you to Indu Subramanian. Indu is one of the most prolific advocates in the Parkinson's community uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. She's been co-authoring a blog with Dr. Michael Okun at parkinsonsecrets.com and hosting seemingly non-stop webinars uh, with the PMD Alliance. She is offering encouragement, new ideas and concepts, and concrete ways you can cope with apathy and depression during COVID-19. Indu is a neurologist and has been working with people with Parkinson's for 20 years. While she is Canadian by birth, she is now living in Southern California, where she heads up the Center of Excellence at the West Los Angeles Veterans Administration, the VA hospital where they take care of veterans. And she's a neurologist on staff at the UCLA Hospital in Westwood. And she's more than that. She's not your typical neurologist. Indu has 200 hours of yoga training, and she's a teacher. And she's been studying mindfulness and was recently certified in integrated medicine. Wonderful. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Well, let's jump right in. Those two words that I just said, integrated medicine. Indu, what is integrated medicine? Yeah, so integrated medicine is sort of the um, borderland between Western, I guess, conventional um, Western approach to medicine, which I learned in medical school, and sort of these alternative or complementary therapeutic approaches, um, some systems of medicine like Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicines, things like that, and the types of therapies that come along with them. And, you know, some mind-body practices such as yoga and mindfulness and all these things would fall into those categories. Um, some people would even put, you know, exercising in those categories, depending on your uh, beliefs in terms of whether those would fall into and under conventional therapies or not. But it's sort of this, um, you know, the approach to integrating these sort of schools of approaches to health. And I like to think about it sort of in a more holistic sort of approach to um, health and not just sort of the lack of disease or the absence of disease. It's really this sort of approach to supporting um, the person in their, um, you know, total, you know, sort of um, body, mind, spiritual kind of well-being to make them thrive the best way that they can and, and ultimately live, you know, a life that, that has good quality. So mindfulness, for those who aren't familiar, talk about what mindfulness is and why it helps you. Yeah. So mindfulness is kind of this interesting term. So um, I, you know, I think basically at its core, it's a meditative practice. It's um, one of the mind-body approaches. Um, mindfulness probably comes, the word I think comes from sort of this, um, the word out of, um, you know, Buddhist uh meditative approach, uh, which is classically in the Vipassana Buddhism tradition of, of meditation. But I mean, I think that, you know, meditate, there's many ways to meditate. And I think that, you know, at, at the core, it's sort of being present, um, sort of um, non-judgmentally sort of being present with uh, sort of the thoughts that are entering in and out of your mind. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, you can do this by sitting on a 
cushion and meditating and, you know, having some guidance with some uh, teacher or um, a guided audio. But I think there's many ways to sort of incorporate some of the principles of this um, in day-to-day life, including, you know, being in nature, maybe, you know, going for a walk in nature and just sensing all the things that are around, you know, the sights, the scents, the smells, the um, sounds, you know, just of, of being sort of present in that moment um, in these different experiences. And I think, you know, uh, depending on who you are and what you do all day long, I think, you know, for me, it's sometimes just sort of, you know, taking a moment, uh, you know, before I might, um, you know, walk in my front door to meet my children and just sort of taking a deep breath or two in and out and just sort of giving gratitude for, you know, what I have in life and, um, you know, the day that I might've had and the people that I might've touched and, you know, then entering the new space with that sort of, um, you know, mindset. So I think there are small practices that are quite practical. I think people get overwhelmed with the sense that they're supposed to, you know, be in a place, um, you know, with their eyes closed for 30 minutes and really, you know, be meditating. Um, It's sort of, I think, a path to getting there and into this sort of place where we can sort of slow down and and be more present. Um, And I think this is very helpful to not just our Parkinson's patients, but, you know, many of my colleagues who are healthcare providers and many of us just trying to, um, you know, sort of live day to day in the current pandemic, um, you know, with all its um, stress and uh, new um, sort of unprecedented changes that are before us. What I love about what she offers is that she's reminding us that mindfulness takes many forms. It doesn't have to be meditation. You and I have meditated for years, but it doesn't have to be a meditation practice. It doesn't have to be a yoga class or daily yoga. It can take the form of whatever works for you in really, really simple ways. It can be a gratitude journal or simply making sure that you're stopping to take a breath if you start to feel overwhelmed or just remembering a few times a day just to stop and focus on your breath. Give yourself the gift of a really nice big breath. It it works. It, it helps to ground you and clarify things and just give you that present moment peace of mind, even if it's just for a moment. Breathe through your toes. Right. <laughs> Like, if you can get the breath down there, that's a big breath. Right. And what a great way to advocate for your own wellness on a regular basis. Right. And it's so, it can be so simple. Well, and I find just just being aware of what your body needs in the moment, like whether it's take a nap. <laughs> like some, right. sometimes, especially with people with Parkinson's, like there's there's moments where you're like, Oh, I could do this yesterday and today. Well, not so much. So I'm going to ask for help or like right. just, just making sure that you are aware of what you need in the moment. Uh, and, and then also, you know, with the, the with the with the um, integrated medicine, I didn't realize all this was integrated medicine. I didn't realize when I was getting massage and I was getting acupuncture and I was doing meditation and mindfulness. And I didn't realize that was a thing like a. Like, like there's a term for all of it. It's kind of like we just thought we Parkinson's. Were, like right. I, I had all these symptoms. I didn't know they were one thing. I, I was doing all these things. I didn't know that was called integrated medicine. Right. We're taking care of our wellness. We knew that it was part of living a more balanced life or at least leaning into your wellness and well-being in general, but that there's a term for it. Integrated medicine that incorporates, like she said, Eastern and Western philosophies, 
looks at the whole person. What do you need in this moment? Do you need to take a walk? Maybe a daily hike is going to improve your wellness immeasurably. Whether it's about writing or art. I you know, I have a lot of friends that play music and that makes them feel better. I love playing the keyboard. I'm gonna I'm gonna advocate for Lego here right now. I think uh, <laughs> Lego should be part of integrated medicine. He gets into this fantastic Lego bubble. <laughs> and it's really it's really part of his well-being. It's it's mindfulness yeah. practice because you're absolutely in the moment, you're focused, you're aware of yourself and your body and your brain and what it needs in that moment. And for me, writing and creative expression is a huge part of that as well. Being aware of when I have something that either needs to be released onto the page or something that I find confusing or overwhelming. And if I put words to it, that will help me find that present moment again and accept what I'm feeling. I think a really important part of it as well is mindfulness doesn't mean that you walk through life with a positive attitude, being grateful or having a general general attitude of gratitude. It doesn't mean that in every moment you're absolutely 100% grateful for absolutely everything. Right. Mindfulness is also about being aware of what you're feeling when you're agitated, when you're out of balance, when something is awry. And that includes the full gamut of emotions because they're part of our experience. And that is a great transition because Michael J. Fox just wrote this new book, There's No Time Like the Future. And it's about the struggles that he had a couple of years ago where he had a tumor on his spine and then he fell in his kitchen and he shattered his arm. It's not a spoiler alert. That's it's like, like the, not the end of the book. It's not the climax. Uh, but he lost sort of his optimism and his, you know, and, and he got it back. When, when, well, through gratitude, really. Um, and so on his book tour, he discussed this quite a bit. And here, here he is talking with people.com. Part, part of uh, what, what I arrive at when I come back to find optimism again is, is that it's really rooted in gratitude and, and, and being grateful for things in life. And, and, and uh, I, 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 this thing came to me that, that, that uh, when, when you have gratitude, uh, Optimism is sustainable because you, you, you keep coming back to your gratitude. And, and part of gratitude is acceptance. And, and accepting that this thing happened, this condition you, 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 you found yourself with, or, or this situation with your family, or this situation in the world, or whatever it is you're fretting about, uh, accept it for what it is. It doesn't mean you can't endeavor to change it. it doesn't mean you have to accept it and, and, and as, a, as a punishment or as a penance. But just as something you can recognize and put it in its proper place and then see how much rest of the rest of your life you have to thrive in it's um it's it's not uh it's not otherwise it's 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 like this free floating anxiety that just creeps in every pore of your being you know if you, if you name something identify and accept it um then you can move on i appreciate so much that there's a lot of discussion within and without the parkinson's community about Allowing yourself to have the full gamut of the emotional experience. This is a challenging time for everyone, for people who are dealing with a chronic condition in any way. It's particularly challenging. You can't be positive all the time. You can't be grateful in every moment. It's really important to acknowledge and move through the emotions that you're truly experiencing and allowing yourself the space to do that and then advocating for yourself 
in that moment say, I'm going to allow myself to have this emotion fully so that I can move through it because I'm human and it's healthy to do that, to truly acknowledge clearly what you're experiencing. And when Michael J. Fox, the world's greatest optimist, says, I feel like crap, <laughs> it gives us all permission to have those moments, right? Uh, let's get back to Indu. Indu, Michael J. Fox realized gratitude is what sustains his optimism. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably true. I mean, I think, you know, even when one has very little, I think, you know, some of the happiest people on the planet are in countries that don't necessarily have that much, but it's just this sort of, you know, un, unfaltering kind of sense of optimism and, and just this this being grateful for, you know, just this, sometimes just the little things, you know, the people that we have in our lives, the, um, you know, something, you know, that's beautiful to listen to something that's yummy to eat something that, you know, is a nice, you know, warm bed at night to sleep in, you know, these small things, I think, um, you know, when you really kind of count the number of things that we all have uh, to be grateful for, despite, you know, all the things that, you know, are the negatives these days, I think we, we just realize, um, you know, more and more how I think gratitude can really um, affect how we approach our day. And I think that, you know, in trying to help uh, people in my life, and this isn't just, um, you know, necessarily my patients, I do some speaking to our medical students, to our residents, our, my colleagues to prevent burnout. And I think one of the most powerful things you can do is to start your day with just writing down, you know, three things that you're grateful for. Um, and that can really set the tone for, you know, a very different day than if you just jumped out of bed and ran off to, you know, start your day. So these are very powerful things. You can even have gratitude for Parkinson's. Um, I mean, I think there is definitely some people who would say that. I think, um, you know, I think that there have been patients that I've met um, and even the people that care about them that have felt like they were kind of maybe rushing around in their lives, um, you know, without really focusing on the things that mattered to them. And it might have been a diagnosis like Parkinson's that may have sort of made them stop and sort of reflect on what what does matter to them. How, how do they want to spend, you know, the days of their lives? How do they want to, um, you know, really affect change? How do, you know, who are the people that matter to them? And so I think that sometimes this type of diagnosis can really make a person reframe, um, you know, sort of, uh, what matters and and how they're going to live. And, you know, the beauty of that is that, you know, I think, again, I, I tend to be an optimist. I, I think it's a very treatable disorder. I like to, you know, sort of develop a relationship in many of my patients I've now had for 20 years. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that sort of this is a journey that I will be, you know, um, being along with them on this road. And, you know, I think that using um, this sort of, um, you know, approach that is transformative, you know, with this diagnosis, I've seen before me, you know, sometimes people who, you know, had relationships that were really negative, or a job that was just really, you know, very um, much uh, not uh, something that was uh, a real purpose to, to work around, um, transform that and take this diagnosis as a reason to make serious changes that have, I think, in the end, really served them well for, 
the rest of their lifetime and, um, you know, really change their quality of life in a very positive way because they got Parkinson's, you know. It's, it, yeah, it's amazing. Like, I wouldn't be talking to you had I not gotten Parkinson's. So how about that? <laughs> Um, when we when we talk about uh, integrative medicine and Parkinson's, um, how are you using it, and how are people responding to it? Yes, I mean my main passion originally, why I went into this whole area, was around yoga um, and uh, its you know potential benefits in a Parkinson's population. I practice uh, in Southern California, and I have a number of younger women uh, patients that were. Um, had been practicing yoga and got the diagnosis and wanted some guidance as to what to do after diagnosis. I myself had developed a pretty strong yoga practice for about, uh, you know, I think it was about 10 years after, like before I did my uh, teacher training, which was about five years ago. And I did that 200 hours, but I still actually continue to do a lot of trainings and, um, you know, have really enjoyed growing into that community and learning about it and, and interfacing with those types of practitioners who I find very, um, you know, uh, sort of excited to work with our patients and interested in um, neurological issues and just really open-minded to see about, you know, partnering um, with me as a doctor to try to help people. Um, so I think that yoga has been something that I've been really excited to explore. And I think it fits very well with Parkinson's in the sense that I really think about yoga as a few things. One is the poses themselves, the sort of physical poses, which, you know, incorporate sometimes stretching, um, and for a, you know, a disease that often affects, uh, body parts and makes them stiff and slow and can affect posture. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think yoga can really, you know, focus on balance, which I think is, you know, often, um, affected in Parkinson's. Um, it has a significant amount of breath work, which I think is really amazing because it has a real ability to help, um, modulate the autonomic nervous system, which is that sort of nervous system that's working in the background uh, to affect blood pressure and heart rate, temperature and things like that. And, um, you know, it affects certain, um, you know, the sympathetic and parasympathetic um, nervous balance, which can affect mood and anxiety and things like that. So I think it's very powerful to use breath to modulate that. And then um, the mindfulness aspects of the meditative aspects is also part and parcel of yoga. And I find that very exciting um, for patients with uh, Parkinson's in the sense that it can really help with the non-motor aspects, including anxiety, including things like cognition, sometimes apathy, you know, depression. There's a whole host of things that it can really affect sleep even in some ways. So I really think it's kind of a complete package. Um, but of course, I'm a bit biased because um, <laughs> it's helped me in my own life. Um, and then I think for me, the social aspects are really pretty magical. So um, getting together in a group, um, having a yoga teacher that can guide somebody um, in a group practice and become sort of a, a sort of a network of people, a real sort of family of folks that, you know, connect kind of um, in, with this yoga interest is, is actually quite beautiful. And as you know, uh, I've been doing some research in social connection um, and, you know, have been really fearful of our patients, even before the pandemic, getting isolated and lonely. Um, and this can be quite detrimental. We're seeing in some of our studies now. Um, and I think that yoga and these sorts of group kind of 
classes with mind body approaches and things can be really effective in helping patients with, um, you know, staying socially connected and having a common purpose that can really help them. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because it is super important and ever present with COVID-19. How, how is the pandemic impacting uh, socialization of people with Parkinson's and, and what, you know, I'm guessing there's a domino effect. Yeah, so I mean, I think even before the pandemic, I think we were quite, um, you know, sort of worried about um, social isolation in our societies, especially in the West. You know, people tend to be becoming ever more um, sort of, uh, you know, living by themselves. And as they age, you know, tending to not come out of um, their homes sometimes, getting, um, feeling like they might be a burden on um, you know, others. And so sort of really just kind of keeping to themselves. This was even pre-pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of a, in our society, a sense of, um, you know, um, uh, independence, I guess, in some ways, but also, you know, it fosters a sort of, um, you know, disconnection, I think, um, organically. So um, with COVID-19, I think with the um, hopes to keep everyone safe, we've really been pushing for our patients, especially ones with um, you know, a certain age group, our male patients more um, probably because of the risk um, when we're seeing the numbers originally of, you know, males over 65, 70, which is, you know, often a pretty um, large population of folks that get Parkinson's as well. We were telling everyone to, you know, stay home, stay indoors, you know, stay um, away from each other and really, you know, sort of, um, you know, be in lockdown effectively. And I think that, you know, we didn't have a sense of how long that was going to be. And it was, of course, you know, the right thing to do at the time. But then now that we're months into this and really thinking about, you know, what is the um, residue of this sort of isolation on our patients and how um, is the derailing of our patients in their support groups, the derailing of our patients in their um, exercise classes, um, you know, their yoga groups, um, now that these people are, you know, effectively really, you know, not getting this sort of social connection, how is it affecting them and what can we do to sort of keep people connected? And so the question is, you know, um, uh, I don't, we, we don't have great data yet. We're planning to repeat some of the surveys. Um, we just sent out some of the surveys um, with Dr. Mishley and her team from Bastyr. Um, so we should have, you know, new data on the specific effects of COVID-19. But I think that everyone um, can tell for themselves anecdotally that this has been a very difficult time. People are, you know, grandparents are not seeing their grandchildren. And this sometimes was the one purpose that many of my patients felt that they were serving was that they, you know, were helping with childcare or, you know, um, helping other neighbors out or, you know, volunteering at the VA, for example, which is where I work. Um, folks were coming in physically and, and meeting and greeting, you know, patients and helping out. So it's been sort of one of those things where, um, you know, as we've gone through the pandemic, um, we're trying to keep people connected and it's unclear how to continue to do this. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking for strategies, including, you know, is there a way to proactively identify people who might be lonely, maybe connect them with um, someone who might phone them, you know, once a week, or um, connect them in a virtual modality, such as a virtual support group. Um, I've been running a virtual support group literally since day one of COVID, um, trying to keep our patients connected through Zoom technology. But as you know, um, Larry, a lot of our patients um, are in age groups where they may not necessarily feel comfortable using this technology. 
um, or don't have access, quite frankly. There was some um, statistics that kind of frightened me about, you know, your average um, patient who's above the age of 65, who's subsisting on, you know, um, you know, social security or, um, you know, certain uh, income really cannot afford or does not have access to internet. Um, it's like a very low percentage of those folks that really can get internet and get a computer and get the setup. So it was like 20% of folks or something in a certain age group, if you look um, at the United States. So it was, um, you know, even though we have these technologies, which are brilliantly exciting for this type of interview and other um, sorts of folks, um, it still excludes um, some of our most vulnerable populations. And usually they're in rural areas as well, which is where you really need the telemedicine as well. <laughs> it's like the, the catch-22. You can't get the the, uh, the Wi-Fi out there and they can't get the access to the doctors remotely and they can't get to the support groups and all that good stuff. Exactly, exactly. So, oh, How I frustrating think- is that? <laughs> yeah, I think if we're really going to try to connect people, we're going to have to really see. I mean, we I was on a committee call for some of this type of issue, and we, we basically talked about the need for universal Wi-Fi that is free, you know, um, at least to certain age groups. Um, if we're really going to say that we're um, helping people access care, um, it, it cannot be some people and exclude others. Well, yeah, it, it, it goes towards when you get diagnosed, you shouldn't just get a bottle of Levodopa. You need to get an exercise regime. Maybe you get free Wi-Fi. Maybe like maybe there's a whole package of stuff you get. Yeah, perhaps an iPad as well, right? right. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, yes, we, we do need to have a system in place. Um, and, and, you know, a, a I've been touting the importance of, for all of our patients, including um, some of my women with Parkinson's, um, a lot of them tend not to have um, a tribe or a spouse that they bring bring in with them. You know, a lot of the men will bring in a wife, but often my women come in alone and they are sort of stoic. They want to go through it alone. And then, you know, at some point, um, I'm really talking about, you know, serious, you know, things that need to be decided upon or, you know, who would be that hand that can you hold right now? And, you know, that's when we're like, well, I never really thought about this. And, you know, should it be my daughter? Should it be my my cousin? Should it be my, you know, best friend from, you know, um, law school or whatever, grade kindergarten, you know? Um, but I think that thinking about from diagnosis, your tribe um, and who are going to be your cheerleaders and who are going to be your confidants, I think is really part and parcel of the new dialogue that I'm hoping to start having with our patients with some of this new information, because I think to have folks that one can really reach out to, um, you know, and, and know are going to be there for the, you know, the duration is, is absolutely important to understand, uh, you know, to understand why we're using medications, you know, what types of issues come up. Having somebody to be your cheerleader as a patient, I think, can be transformational. And and many of the times when we do studies and we're looking at, you know, Caucasian men that are married um, that are 65, which is your average participant in a study, we aren't including these types of demographics that really, um, really do need a hand to hold and a shoulder to, you know, sort of... Um, you know, hug or whatever. I think it's, it's the, this is a sort of dialogue that we need to be having. For sure. Like I can't imagine going through this without my wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're very lucky. <laughs> I am very lucky. I'm that I have more to be uh, grateful for. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. As you work with the VA, uh, the VA uh, with the veterans, how open are they to yoga and mindfulness? 
So you'd be surprised. So the VA itself has this, um, it's a, it's a system of health called the whole health approach. And they basically have been doing, um, some pretty amazing things where, um, they are trying to, um, you know, think about all of these approaches that we've talked about yoga, mindfulness, acupuncture, um, health coaches, um, and, uh, you know, using sort of, um, really just lifestyle approaches with the sense that the patient is in the middle and that all of these things um, that make the patient, you know, thrive, including their social network, including diet, uh, nutrition, you know, sleep, um, you know, exercise, uh, all of these things are in circles around them and, and need to be kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, encouraged and explored. And so they actually have um, this unique kind of system of approach uh, to help um, that is rolled out throughout the VA and, and actually are paying for, you know, acupuncturists and some of the yoga teachers and things like that to be working with our patients. So they've been pretty open-minded. And then, you know, with respect to the veterans themselves, it's kind of fun to be, um, you know, the, that hat that I wear um, in my VA clinics is kind of fun because a veteran will start sort of, you know, it'll be somebody who is, you know, 82 years old and you start talking about the medication and they, they may ask you sort of just as a taste, like, what do you think about this, um, you know, taking vitamins or whatever? And then, you know, if you give them an intelligent answer, the next question, you know, it leads down this path and then they actually tell you, well, actually, doc, I'm really interested in this approach and I've been doing this in my life for the last you know, 15 years and meditating like this, or, you know, um, doing this type of, you know, um, yoga or this type of, you know, approach. And, and if you don't really have the time and look like you're interested in hearing about it, no one will actually bring it to your attention. But I think in many of our studies looking at um, North American populations, about 65 or 70% of folks um, in the U.S. Uh, right now with Parkinson's have been um, using some sort of integrate, what we call integrative medicine modality. All a, right. and they a, may, may awesome. or may not be speaking to their their doctors about it at all, but they are using this. Or, or telling anybody. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's got to be good news for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good news for me, but at the same time, if we're not learning about it and not understanding about it, then first of all, there are, some of these approaches are not, fully without harm, you know, um, you know, often people will ask about, you know, certain types of supplements, for example, or herbs. And, you know, so some of those things can be quite potent and actually interact with, um, you know, other uh, medications that we give. So it's important that the dialogue be happening. Um, I mean, honestly, some of the approaches that people get, uh, if you Google, for example, Parkinson's, um, the stuff that comes up in ads, often has very little merit and sometimes can be quite expensive and sometimes even dangerous. And so I think having the ability to have a dialogue, having some ability to understand who's using what, what the potential benefits are, but also understanding the risks, like any approach is, is important. So I think, you know, my hope is to at least be open about talking about this and have, um, you know, um, patient advocacy organizations that um, are, open to the dialogue as well so that they can put up, you know, reasonably filtered information in a place and um, really sort of um, have, you know, patients uh, feel like they can be open with their providers so that we can, you know, not ultimately have harm being given. Because interestingly, things like stem cells are in this, you know, realm of integrative medicine in oh, some yeah. situations. And some of those, you know, patients can get, you know, $10,000 of, um, some dangerous uh, cells, uh, you know, injected into some random body part if they, you know, travel to 
a place and end up, you know, possibly causing harm. So, you know, I think uh, just uh, the notion that something's alternative or complementary or integrative in and of itself doesn't make it necessarily, um, you know, something that I would approve. I, I think, you know, we have to enter into these things um, with the lens of, um, you know, open-mindedness, but also a sense of, you know, at the very least not wanting uh, to be um, harming anyone and certainly don't want to have patients, um, you know, being told that there's a cure if, as long as they sign up and pay this much money. Anything that sounds too good to be true is usually is too good to be true. And, um, you know, certainly, um, you know, if somebody's going to ask you to pay a lot of money for something that's not actually FDA approved or, you know, only available in a foreign country or something, then we still, we should really be, you know, talking to our providers and, and getting a sense of whether this makes any sense or not. And that's why it's important to have somebody, you know, it's sort of your, your, your buddy, uh, whether it's your partner or your friend or your cousin or whatever, even if you're not comfortable talking to your doctor about things before you make decisions, bounce it off these people at least. Yeah, I think so. And even the advocacy, I think organizations can be quite helpful too. like, you know, the, the ones that are in Canada and throughout. I mean, I think, you know, there's some bigger ones that are very, very um, good that have, you know, patient uh, safety and, and uh, you know, their advocacy is, is the number one focus. And I think those are, you know, reasonable to, um, you know, at least start a dialogue before one, you know, does entertain sort of an aggressive uh, or kind of a, you know, um, a, a, a sort of a last ditch approach or, you know, so there's sort of a desperation sometimes when people get these diagnoses and they're willing to try anything. But I think, again, um, you know, one should really weigh the risks and the benefits pretty, pretty well. And I think there's enough of us now that are starting to be in this sort of borderland between the integrative medicine side of things and, you know, standard approaches that I think we, um, you know, are trying to filter out the information and get this sort of needed um, information out and do some good, you know, um, review articles and things like that so that people can feel like there's, um, you know, some open-minded, um, you know, uh, state-of-the-art uh, sense of what we think is reasonable. Why Parkinson's? Why, why dedicate your career to helping people with Parkinson's? So I love the brain. I think the brain is super cool. I think in medical school there were, you know, I had a class of 250 um, colleagues and uh, I think there was two of us who went into neurology. So I think it's rather unique to be in love with the brain as I was. And I just thought, you know, it's the heart of where, you know, I think emotions resonate from the heart as well as the brain. I think that, you know, it's sort of, uh, I love math and science and I was always drawn to, you know, the, the power of, of the memory and, um, you know, just how many cool things happen in the brain. I had an uncle who was a neurologist in India and um, he inspired both me and uh my cousin, actually his son, to go into neurology because he always just had the coolest stories of various patients to tell us. And it was was just always such a pleasure to, um, you know, interact with him and, and be around him and hear all the stories. So, so that's why the brain. So storytelling got you into neurology. Yeah, I guess of sorts. Yeah. I mean, it was always sort of, he'd come back and my mom's a doctor as well. Uh, we have a family full of uh, physicians and, you know, I was just always struck by, you know, how much you can help people and really make a difference in their lives. But, you know, the, the stories of neuro neurological patients has always kind of fascinated me. You know, if somebody had a stroke in the right part of their brain and they could, you know, 
um, speak but not comprehend. You know, if you had a you know a, a tumor in the right part of your brain, you could end up losing vision in a certain area, and you could tell that from their neurological exam. Um, you know, so many cool things. It was sort of like this deducing kind of where um, where the problem was and what the problem could be from the history and the physical exam. And I just always was fascinated by that. What's the coolest thing you've encountered so far? Um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed being a Parkinson stock and making a difference. I mean, we've had game changing moments where literally a patient has walked in or, or been brought into my room, um, as a neurologist, like the VA, for example. Um, and this happens about once, once every couple of years where somebody, you know, is literally can't get off the wheelchair, can't get off the couch is brought in unclear what the diagnosis has been, um, you know, even despite practicing in, you know, a developed part of the world. And, you know, we examine the patient and we say, oh, this looks like Parkinson's disease, give them a medication and they literally transform in front of our eyes. So, and, you know, by four weeks later, they've been given their life back, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I'm still always amazed by how our patients respond to some of our medications and our treatments. And once people get into a flow with lifestyle sometimes and really get into a good, healthy kind of approach to living, some of them say that, you know, they're in the best level of health that they've ever been in their lives with the treatment that we're able to give them and, you know, sort of a um, part of them owning their disease and getting into the right groove and us giving them the right diagnosis and putting them on the right therapy. It's a pretty magical thing that happens. Talk about owning the disease. What does that mean to you? Um, so, I mean, I think uh, you and I have spoken a little bit about this as, along with some of the Avengers that you've been working with. Um, but I think that, you know, for me as a Parkinson's doc, um, we, you know, give this diagnosis out to patients on a regular basis, you know, pretty much my weeks are filled with giving out this diagnosis. And I personally think that it's a really treatable disease. And I think we have a lot of therapies that can make a huge difference uh, for patients. And, you know, we keep people living much longer lives, much more, um, you know, good quality of life. But I think some part of that comes from them accepting the diagnosis and kind of becoming part of the solution. Um, when you, and there is this sort of game changing moment, I think that happens. And sometimes it's for some people, it's, you know, week two of the diagnosis. Sometimes it takes five years, uh, to get that sort of transformation, but I think sort of accepting the diagnosis and then trying to put the energy rather than fighting, I think the diagnosis in terms of, you know, the acceptance aspect, uh, when people are in denial, um, you know, wanting it to be something else, wanting us to be wrong, um, you know, pretending like there's really nothing wrong, minimizing symptoms, trying to hide it from people. I think once people have really accepted it, I think they can take those steps to really change that energy, change the focus in a positive way to, you know, putting that energy um, into, you know, advocacy, ad activism in, term, in terms of empowerment uh, in, in what they can do in their daily lives, you know, um, and, and really make a difference from a lifestyle and, you know, exercising, um, eating right, sleeping right, you know, putting all those sort of pieces together can really, I think, make a difference. And once people, I guess, quote unquote, own that, um, they accept the diagnosis and take those steps to, you know, um, get in a good sort of uh, framework of, being part of the solution, I think it can really be transformative. 
Yeah, Parkinson's is one of those diseases. It's it's, uh, and I'm sure there's some others. I just don't know what they are. Where when you go to the doctor, typically you're expecting the doctor to make you better. And, and with Parkinson's, the doctor can prescribe a few things, but most of the work is on your own. It's it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's physical, and, and you have to keep yourself accountable. And, and, and in order to get better and to, and to keep the symptoms at bay, you've got to work at it every day. And that's not yeah. really the doctor-patient relationship we're used to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. There are other diseases like that. I mean, I think you could say that, you know, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, many of these things are, you know, should have a similar approach. There are some medications that people can go on, you know, if they really can't, um, you know, make the lifestyle things happen. But, um, you know, I, I and, you know, sometimes we do see that where people are getting, you know, um, heart surgeries or heart, uh, you know, bypass surgeries or um, stents and things put in because they can't kind of get on board with the lifestyle changes that can really make a difference with those vessels being clotted off. But I agree. I think that with Parkinson's, we have, you know, a therapy that can replace a chemical that's missing, but then there's all this other sort of areas that really require, um, I think, you know, some some working together, I would like to say, you know, I'm sometimes the cheerleader, I'm sometimes the ship captain a little bit to guide people, but then ultimately it's for them to, um, you know, really make the day-to-day -day changes, uh, you know, with our guidance and hopefully we can, you know, work together in a therapeutic alliance to help patients to get to where they need to get. So um, uh, I think it's, it definitely requires a lot of commitment and um, ownership by the patient. Yeah, and I didn't mean to to, uh, <laughs> to diminish the role of the neurologist and the rest of the team because the team is really important. Tell me quickly about Parkinsonsecrets.com. <laughs> so, yeah, so Mike Oaken and I have been um, working on a blog together. I think you had him and his team uh, with the Ending Parkinson's Disease book on your series. So, um, you know, all the good things that they do. And as the Avengers, I think we're all trying to work together to sort of figure out how to end Parkinson's. So um, Mike and I have been working on um, a blog and interviewing some of the guests that we've had on the virtual support group, which is hosted by PMD Alliance. So we welcome folks to go check out um, both the PMD Alliance videos um, and then the uh, blog as well. And um, we've had just some great folks come on and blog and we'll hopefully we'll have all the Avengers and their blogs as well. But I think it's something that we're trying to provide, you know, once a week kind of tips that are practical. We've had occupational therapists, physical therapists, uh, yoga teachers, um, all kinds of folks. We've, um, you know, had some cutting edge kind of research, including our research on social connection that just was was put up in that space. So we urge you to check it out. And if you have suggestions for blogs that you want to see, you can always, um, you know, write to us as well. And, um, and yeah, we hope to continue to have an amazing um, sort of dialogue between, you know, you guys as the PD Avengers and the advocacy work that you're doing and activism and us as, you know, the, the ones that are cheerleading alongside of you. Um, <laughs> And hopefully, you know, we can work together to really change um, sort of the uh, dialogue for our patients um, and, and really make a difference. And some of these relatively, I, I still feel, are such low-hanging fruit, you know, some I know. Of the that you guys have 
uh, and embarked on things like getting rid of paraquat, getting rid of, um, you know, uh, certain other chemicals that are in the environment, um, trying to figure out how we can get every country in Africa access to, you know, the most basic of Parkinson's medications. It seems kind of ludicrous that we're still even talking about these super basic things. But, um, you know, I think ultimately, um, working together, you know, is the way. And I think that, you know, when we look at things like silver linings, silver linings of getting a diagnosis such as um, Parkinson's, there's also silver linings of a time frame like COVID-19 in the sense that I think it's made us all kind of slow down and stop and think about, you know, how we can best use our energy and our time and our, you know, sort of um, motivation right now. Um, and I think that for me, it's been about, you know, partnership and collaboration and trying to, um, you know, help uh, others with the good work that they're doing and to work together to really, you know, make a difference and, and you know, share some of this knowledge that I think we can all do now and disseminate very quickly and easily given some of the technology that we have before us. You know, for those folks that are feeling a little sad and blue and kind of frustrated with COVID-19, I think a lot of the integrative approaches that we've talked about, you know, keeping exercise going and the mind-body approaches with yoga and mindfulness and, you know, good diet, good exercise can serve all of us well, regardless of if we have Parkinson's or not. Just being a human being on this planet, I think um, we should be entering those uh, in our daily lives. And then certainly the social connection um, piece is something that I would hope we can all um, sort of uh, reaffirm and uh, hope people can reach out uh, you know, through various mediums, including this type of podcast, um, you know, to stay connected and also, you know, just old school, basic phone calls <laughs> to one another. <laughs> right. Uh, that's great. No, uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And uh, uh, we really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Have a good one. Oh, man, she's great. I, I love talking to Indu and, and I, I look forward to collaborating with her in the future because she's really big on collaborations. Excellent. Uh, you can read her blog at parkinsonsecrets.com. There's no S on Parkinson's, but there's an S on secrets. So it's parkinsonsecrets.com. Or watch her webinars at pmdalliance.org. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you are not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, our partners and friends, standing together to demand change in how this disease is seen and treated. Join us now at PDAvengers.com. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. I know him. <laughs> I did kind of too. Available on Apple Podcasts at michaeljfox.org. Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And the World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Yes, we're going to Barcelona! Go to wpc2022.org for details on special virtual events you can participate in now. We better be able to travel by then. I make no guarantees. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, give the show a five-star rating. 
and we'd like for you to comment, please. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our email is at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. And spread the word, however you can, wherever you are. Tell a friend. Run into somebody that has Parkinson's or somebody who knows of somebody with Parkinson's. Hey, there's this great podcast. Um, or like email somebody randomly and just go, hey, I thought you might like this. Just send a link. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a gift. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> I greatly enjoy your silliness. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.